0: If you were to discover an element, what would you name it?
1: Well, I suppose the narcissistic side, you would name it after your own name in some way, wouldn't you? <laughs> Although, actually, my one could end up sounding like a dodgy disease, syphilis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, science fans. Hello, pint fans. Welcome to the Pint of Science Podcast, broadcasting today from the Assembly Inn in Bath.
2: The festival is now just two weeks away and tickets are already 50% gone. So if you've been resting on your laurels and thinking you'll get round to buying those tickets next weekend, act now to avoid disappointment. This year's festival is May 20th to the 22nd. We
0: have events now in 41 locations across the UK. Over 600 events, in fact, covering every science under the sun, as well as the science of the sun, I expect. Solar science is indeed of relevance to today's guest, who we are literally just catching up with for a tasty pint now.
2: Professor Seifel Islam is Professor of Materials Chemistry at the University of Bath. Having grown up in Crouch End, North London, he bagged himself a BSc and a PhD, under the supervision of Professor Richard Catlow, from University College London, before jetting off to the USA to work as a postdoc investigating oxide superconductors in New York.
0: It was here that Seifel's passion for research truly took form, and he returned to the UK to become a lecturer and later reader at the University of Surrey, before eventually making his way to Bath to take up his current position in 2006. He now researches new classes of compounds for rechargeable lithium batteries and next generation solar cells, with a view to meeting our growing energy demands in a green and sustainable way. His academic work and his public engagement work have earned him a healthy list of accolades, perhaps his highest profile public engagement work being delivering the Royal Institution Christmas lectures in 2016. Anyway, that's quite enough from me, let's have a pint of science with Professor Saiful Islam. this podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors brilliant.org a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them brilliant.org's newest feature daily challenges helps make learning a daily habit every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths logic science engineering or computer science so if you're inspired by what you hear today and you want to learn a little of the science behind it yourself check out brilliant.org or download the app There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. Am I right in thinking you grew up in North London?
1: I did. I grew up in a place called Crouch End. Crouch End. And we were there from the late 60s through 70s. It wasn't as trendy it is now. Now it's become so trendy, it's now called cruchon. All
0: oh, right. <laughs> See, I grew up in North London as well, in Barnet, and somehow that's never managed to
2: become trendy. Barnet. Barnet, Barnet of course, <laughs> yeah. Barnet, yes, thank you.
0: What kind of experience of school did you have? What was it that set you on your, your science path?
1: My memories of school, I mean, were, I was a, a boy's comprehensive. I can't say I was passionate about science, but I remember in the late 70s, being more passionate about music. So if you remember, 77 was iconic here in terms of punk. Oh, yes, of course. And, and late 70s, my two favourite bands I went to see at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park were The Stranglers and The Jam. Amazing. <laughs> nice.
0: That's fantastic. I'm glad I've, yeah. I've <laughs> predicted your music taste appropriately. We may come on to music later, <laughs> yeah. but I was <laughs> hoping that would be the kind of ballpark They're, we were uh,
1: in. <laughs> they've stuck to guitar stuff, so, uh, yeah. At some point, something must have kind of, like... Well, I suppose coming from an immigrant background... His parents they were first generation immigrants and then and uh, they were the first to arrive in nineteen sixty four. Asian families then were very much geared towards education. So there was a implicit perhaps even explicit pressure to go down the medicine route. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. oh, yes. So I ended up enjoying my science A level, so I did chemistry, physics, maths at A level and I enjoyed them, but I couldn't see myself as a doctor, so I resisted my parents' push into medicine. <laughs> I did marry one. I did marry a doctor in the end. And I went into my favourite A-level, which was chemistry. So without any knowledge of what chemistry would end up, I just ended up doing my favourite A-level for a degree.
0: What was it about doctoring that you didn't think would have...
1: Blood. (laughs) Blood. Squeamish. Cutting up the air. People. Yeah. I couldn't see myself. I, I suppose I was still at that age, still asking questions, and I didn't see medicine... Was a route to asking questions. It was kind of I suppose it's putting it into practice, yeah, isn't it? Medicine practice, to some extent. You almost given the actual answers and you've got on with it. So there wasn't enough questioning. So maybe even then I realised I wanted to go down a path of actually questioning things. Yeah,
0: I won't make you reel off your entire history, but I think I'm right in saying your BSC and your PhD were at UCL, is that yeah, right? Yep. Yeah. University College London. You've been in London the whole time then, you'd stuck stuck London.
1: So yeah, well again. When I applied for universities there weren't that many from that Asian background actually had the culture of leaving home so I just picked I knew a couple of colleges I was keen on. Chelsea, which existed back then but doesn't exist anymore, and University College London, and I put University College London first. really liked it. It was great to be in central London. But I was fortunate, even though my parents were in London, I got into halls of residence in Camden. Oh, so good for music. That's <laughs> literally perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that <laughs> early 80s in Camden was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Camden Market, being close to musical venues and other things. The, the halls of residence, that, the room I was on was on Camden Road the first night I was thinking I've made a big big mistake Was that first night the noise from Camden Road I slept so bad I thought what have I done <laughs> but then you get used to it so whenever you drive down Camden Road or I'm in a bus i point out that's where I lived <laughs> on
0: that. Yeah, that didn't we? we lived on a main road in uh, Manchester. Yeah, yeah. It was the same thing, Mosley Road in Manchester. And oh, for yeah. the first week, I was like, we've made a horrible error. It was like every ambulance in Manchester <laughs> yeah. seemingly went past my room at night.
1: Camden Road is the same thing. You could always hear <laughs> kind of sirens.
0: So were your family, although they had this expectation you might go into medicine, were they still encouraging of your science career? Yeah,
1: I mean, they, they were happy. I think they were... Content that I was content with what I was doing, everything was fine. So,
2: yeah, is it time to do some sciencey stuff? I feel like we've <laughs> we've made you we've made you talk yes. through your childhood. <laughs> yeah. I should just yeah. say
0: quickly though, you end up in Bath. How does Bath compare to London as far as a place to live? This is my first time in Bath. It's I, beautiful.
1: Yeah, it it's, really it's quiet. Gorgeous. We we we've been here thirteen years. I've I've really enjoyed it here. It's a great place for children to grow up. So, the, I mean, we arrived when the, Yasmin, our daughter, was three. Zach, our son was one. In fact, I remember her first word, she came up, walked up the steps, she goes, Daddy, I can have a bath in Bath. <laughs> yeah. And the work environment in the department and at the university has been great. It's really supportive. And Bath University itself, University of Bath has got stronger and stronger. Okay. Uh, so it's a good place to work.
0: So was it during your BSc, PhD that you decided you were going to stick out academia? When would you say you had that moment where you were like, actually, I think research is my
1: calling? So after at the end of the degree I realised that I wanted to carry on doing science. Again I had no expectations about academia. In fact my secret is having low expectations as possible because I've seemed to have met my low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never been disappointed, so I've been really, really so BSC, good degree, then PhD and then towards the middle to the end of my PhD high-temperature superconductors came on the scene. Oh, I remember that. So that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, good <times>. <laughs> <laughs> That was 1986, yeah. Ah, OK. So that was towards the end of my PhD, and my PhD supervisor, Richard Catlow, who's now Foreign Secretary of the Royal Society, he said, so, have you noticed these kind of um, new materials? I said, yes, there's been some interesting news items. He said, How about modelling the first one the lanthan copper oxide superconductor I said okay so that ended up being the last chapter of my thesis well, I, right and it, it was such an exciting time I gave a talk in the US it was like the Woodstock of physics they described it I don't know if you know much about the high temperature superconductors I don't know much <laughs> so at all. a superconductor is a material that shows zero resistance so in principle an electric current could go on forever you know it could be perpetual motion they also show very powerful magnetic properties. So, whenever you see a, a general article about superconductors, you always see a levitating magnet. And that's why you get these possible maglev trains, magnetic levitating trains, based on these superconductors. Anyway, up to 1986, the highest temperature superconductor was only about 30 Kelvin, you know, really low down. And then came along this discovery, which the transition temperature superconductivity jumped. Jumped to 90 Kelvin, which was a massive leap at 60. And why Kelvin. is the
0: temperature important? Sorry, we
1: would ideally love them to be room temperature, right? Okay, such that so so you could
0: use them in yeah. applications like
1: LED trains or whatever. So, currently, we have to cool these materials using liquid nitrogen oh, right, okay. uh-huh. to get them superconducting. So again, the image you always see is not only a magnetic superconductor above a real magnet, you always see this kind of cloud. And that cloud is basically liquid nitrogen. Right, OK. So it's dipped in liquid nitrogen first. I can
0: imagine that's quite a popular image for like yeah, science. Yeah. That's what people tend to associate. They hear science and they think of things so bubbling and So to answer your question, brooms. that's
1: where I got really passionate about the science I was doing okay. and that took me to a postdoc in the US yes. uh, to yeah. Eastman Kodak and they got me to do some modelling of more modelling of superconducting materials OK,
0: and the superconductors were the subject of that postdoc but it's not exactly what you're doing now, is it?
1: That was 88 to 1990 again, um, I was thinking of just going to plain old teacher training after All that oh, oh, wow. Wow. but my boss, again Richard Cutlow, said apply for some lectureships so I applied for a couple I think Manchester and Surrey came up. I have interviewed for both, and again to my surprise, again my low expectations. University of Surrey offered me a lectureship. So it came, that's my start of my academic career back in nineteen ninety. University of Surrey in Guildford. It's so nice that you had like a
0: mentor that kind of encouraged <laughs> yeah, you to do that. So
1: he's. If I had any advice for the early career researchers, is um, not advice, but. It's really fortunate to have a champion, somebody you can go to for advice, but also can champion your career in a way. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate to have someone like Richard Catlow to do that.
0: Very similar experience of finishing up my BSc. I was ready to say, right, well, that's it for science then. And I think it was my personal supervisor, Bipasha Chowdhury, who said to me, yeah, you should go and apply for some PhDs. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And thus, five years of
1: my life have
2: now gone by. (laughs) What's your favourite thing about being a scientist then?
1: I think it's the freedom to investigate and probe new areas of science that other people haven't explored before. So that that kind of academic freedom of really asking questions and trying to investigate those very questions. You mentioned modelling,
2: and that is what you're currently doing now, I believe. I'm going to read it out because otherwise I will definitely get it wrong. But (laughs) Modelling new classes of compounds for rechargeable lithium batteries and next generation solar cells. Is
1: that what you're currently working on? I am, yes. So superconductors could help with the whole clean energy area, so I've always stayed in that area and partly goes within within my kind of green philosophy and my political interests. So the research now is looking at next generation lithium-ion batteries, which are important for electric vehicles, uh, which is very topical at the moment. Lithium batteries have been very successful in mobile electronics, I mean, love them or tolerate them, they now dominate our phones, laptops, yeah. they're just, they're, just everywhere. they're everywhere. So we're trying to develop new materials and new batteries that could, I suppose, improve the range and performance of batteries in electric cars. Ah.
2: So we're thinking bigger and further and...
1: Not so much bigger. So the limitations on the current batteries in cars, although they still work, is that something called energy density, how much energy you can store within that battery. The more energy you can store, the longer the range of your vehicle. Mm -hmm. So you want something that can occupy a smaller volume, a smaller mass, I make it lighter, but go further.
0: Because that's kind of one of the main criticisms leveled against electric vehicles right now, isn't it? That actually you can't go as far as you might like to, or at least you can't go as far in them as you can in a conventional.
1: Yeah, it's something called range anxiety, (laughs) (laughs) range anxiety. So it's about this worry that you can't go as far. I remind people, like any anxiety, it's largely psychological. Uh Because did you know, this interesting stat that I discovered when I gave general talks 90% of all UK car journeys are less than 40 miles.
0: So people zip into the shops?
1: 50% are less than five miles. Right. Going to supermarket, school run, they're actually, even your daily commute, it's not that far. Yeah, yeah. So current range vehicles which are up to about 150 kilometres, easily could do that. And as somebody else says, also when you go on a long journey, there's something called the bladder brake. <laughs> because whoever drives 500 miles in one go anyway, yeah. I mean, truck drivers yeah. might, but mo- most people take a break. So going to the service station and things like that. Despite all that, people would like a vehicle that can go a long range without worrying about charging. Yeah. The other interesting stat is that over six million households in the UK have got more than one car. So the idea possibly, again, to do with psychology is maybe have your second car as pure electric if you are really anxious and have your main car as your normal petrol car.
0: I suppose that brings in the question of cost barriers.
1: There is a cost issue and I think I suppose with any new technology when you know CD players or iPods came on the scenes I think about even for for phones there is a cost aspect to it and economy of scale suggests that costs will come down mm-hmm. we're looking at new sustainable materials as well trying to bring the cost down I mean obviously as a pure scientist we want to understand the fundamentals <laughs> yeah. of the materials so I would say my philosophy is trying to understand the underpinning science the fundamental science behind these materials to try and develop new better ones
0: yeah absolutely and I guess the the kind of challenge for finding new sustainable energy is extremely topical yeah, just it's now yeah. at the moment yeah, seems yeah, like the, the first time people are starting to properly take it. Yes. More and then, seriously,
2: and then there might be change on a, a sort of higher than personal scale, which is kind of what it's been up to now. Yeah. Where it's been people deciding that, oh, I'm going to get an electric car, whereas hopefully now we're seeing on a more of a society wide. Uh,
1: Basically, we, what we need is our national treasure, David Attenborough, yes. <laughs> yeah. to come on news programs as much as possible. He brought up plastic yeah. and immediately, it's, it's everyone. Yeah. and. Now he's brought up climate change, the facts, yeah. and actually supporting some of the climate protests. So, basically, we want him to live as long as he can. <laughs> yes. If there's another research area, we'll be to basically clone David Attenborough.
0: <laughs> I feel like ex- Extinction Rebellion as well has had quite a uh, profound... Yeah. I think being disruptive to the normal running of London seemed to get quite a lot of press.
1: I think, well, I think the history has showed us that for any fundamental change in society, whether it's to do with women's rights black civil rights in the US, protest will be part of that. You need legislation and lawmakers to make a difference and politicians. But for them to look to take notice, for media to take notice, it does unfortunately need some massive protests. Yeah.
2: So lithium, that's the that's the key element that's in all of these batteries and stuff. What makes lithium so special what makes it the the key ingredient
1: so with lithium as I said before energy density is about trying to store as much energy in a per unit mass or per unit volume lithium is the smallest and lightest of metal Ah. ions okay so you can those small lithium ions you can actually insert into the electrodes within your lithium battery so very simply a battery is what i call an electrochemical sandwich like any sandwich you've got two bread slices and they're the two electrodes one is made of an oxide ceramic one is graphite that's how i always make my sandwiches yeah <laughs> and in between you need a good sandwich filling so in this case the meat or cheese if you're vegetarian <laughs> is a fast lithium ion conducting electrolyte which allows lithiums to shuttle uh, between okay. the two electrodes but lithium being the smallest and lightest of the metal ions yes. you can make that a very small and highly energy dense uh, battery compared to say a nickel cadmium for example uh,
2: okay ah, so it's all about efficiency basically and the yeah.
1: size of the the atoms and ions I'll do a leading question for you already. (laughs) You would say, well, there are things lighter than lithium. And I'd say, yes, hydrogen. Uh So the fuel of the future and the cars of the future possibly could be fuel cell cars driven by hydrogen. But I won't go into details about hydrogen, but hydrogen has issues itself about storage and producing hydrogen. I don't work on hydrogen fuel cells, but that ultimately would have a higher energy density than lithium. Uh,
2: and I was impressed we had hydrogen-fueled buses and stuff for that already. they were, yeah, were trials trialed in
1: London. They're very, very expensive. And as mentioned, a big issue is hydrogen storage. How do you store the hydrogen in your vehicle? So at the moment, it's just a compressed cylinder, which has major your safety issues. Right, okay. <laughs> major yeah. safety issues. And again, you thought the psychology of range anxiety was worrying. The psychology of Hydrogen balloons. <laughs> yes. Blowing up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is actually. People who work in hydrogen say, oh, it's, it's overblown. It's. Yeah, but, <laughs> but um, we don't have the infrastructure of hydrogen at the moment.
0: So it's not as simple as the lighter the element and the smaller the element, the better. You've got to think about other
2: factors
1: there when you There are you're... other factors as does well. It, does
2: it have to be a metal? Is that a necessity?
1: No, but most of the rechargeable batteries that people are looking at are either based on lithium which is dominate people are looking at sodium okay. there are researchers looking even at magnesium as well oh wow so they are looking at other metal ions shuttling between those bread slices those, <laughs> ele- those electrodes in your battery i
0: mean immediately sodium sounds a lot more readily available so we're talking about salt they're just the same thing you would
1: <laughs> hit it right on the nail so the advantage of sodium is it's abundance. It's the sixth most abundant element, apparently, in the Earth's crust. So sodium has advantage over lithium in terms of abundance and cost. The disadvantage of sodium, it's larger and heavier. So the applications of sodium won't be for portable electronics, or maybe even not electric cars, but for large-scale energy storage that we need for renewables. So it's really when, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, We'll need energy storage. Yeah. We need to store it, and sodium-ion batteries are being looked at for large-scale grid storage.
0: Well, in the simplest terms, I sort of divided up your research when I was reading <laughs> through it because it's so far removed from my area. I had to start from a point of complete <laughs> ignorance, but I found myself being like so on the one hand you've got your storage issues so you look into batteries and this is this is kind of your lithium battery research but also you look at conversion of energy and that's your kind of solar and renewables neck of the woods is that a fair way to summarize it it?
1: perfect yeah could you give my talks for me
0: (laughs) i would love to but i've seen (laughs) your talks and they're pretty good it's quite a high standard to me No, you're right
1: it is my grand philosophy is that for advances in either lithium-ion battery technologies or solar cell technologies for major advances you need new materials new science and a greater fundamental understanding so that will sum up what we're about. My research group are looking at new materials Mm -hmm. and trying to understand them a lot better at the atomic scale and that's why we're using computer modeling that I've just discussed and the kind of issues that we're trying to understand is can we design a new composition or a new structure that could show better lithium-ion battery properties, whether lithium-ions could move faster, we could store more lithiums in in a material.
0: So you often say in your talks that you're a chemist that doesn't wear a white lab coat. And this is presumably because you spend a lot of your time modelling, which, although it sounds like it sounds a fun, airfix-based like... hobby, I or am assuming.
2: that you're in front of the camera a lot, you know, wearing lots of nice silica. I do say this.
1: So when I, when I go to parties, that's, uh, that's when I get invited at this. Sonny, when you mention you're professor in chemistry, the, those party invitations dry up. So uh, when I do get invited to those parties and people say, Cipher, what do you do? Rather than say I'm a chemist, I sometimes say, I model. <laughs> nice. So I don't model down the catwalk, obviously, but I model on very powerful supercomputers. So what the modeling does is it allows us to try and set up these beautiful crystal structures using well-established physics to try and understand and model what's going on at the atomic level.
2: And does that mean you can play around with different configurations, different sort of structures and stuff like that?
1: Well, let me go back to lithium first. If I said lithium is the smallest and lightest of ions and atoms, experimentally, it's not easy to see. They are difficult to probe experimentally. (laughs) So X-ray diffraction is the normal technique to look at crystal structures. Mm -hmm. X-ray diffraction has trouble looking at lithium because it's tiny. So what modelling allows us to do is look at those lithium ions Explicitly, mm-hmm. and actually understand how they move through these crystal structures. Mm-hmm. So again, we're trying through computer modelling to understand how lithium ions move, where they sit within the structures, so we can <laughs> design better materials. Because how they move... Is predictable. Is predictable and also controls how fast you charge your phone. How, li- how fast lithium ions move is directly related to charging. Right rate of charging your battery. Why do they
0: suddenly go so rubbish? Yeah, that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Why they does your degrade. own battery? <laughs> they
1: degrade. Yeah, they right. degrade.
0: So for computer modelling, you take this structure of lithium or whatever material you're working with, you know the structure of that from a different technique, X-ray diffraction. diffraction. I think it's how we actually get an idea of what these materials look like on a atomic level. That's right. And then you recreate that on a computer and that's how modelling works. You're then working with a kind of Virtual representation of that material. Is that is that a a fair representation of modelling?
1: Yeah, that's a good description. Okay, good.
0: (laughs) And that's what would you say that is like the vast majority of your time? Then is is the modelling in the lab? Yeah.
1: So a a lot of our work is directly linked with experimental collaborators. We have some really good experimental groups within the UK and abroad. And the the beauty of science is that it's so international. Mm. And now with modern communications, I, I collaborate with a group at University of Stanford um, in California. I collaborate with a group at MIT in, in Boston. I collaborate with groups at Oxford and Cambridge in the UK. And they're doing the experimental aspect, and we're complementing what they're doing but from a computer modeling point of view. So that kind of synergy between experiment and modeling really kind of advances the understanding of these materials. A growing topic I want to move into is energy conversion and that's to do with this very topical area of solar cells and more specifically a key word to take away perovskite perovskite uh, solar yeah, cells
0: what, yeah. sounds like a kind of Russian philosopher or something yeah, like yeah. that I, uh... the origins
1: are Russian <laughs> ah, right, fantastic. so perovskite is an actually occurring mineral named after Russian geologist right. Perovsky
2: and what is perovskite? what yeah, makes it so special so for solar cells?
1: the original mineral Thank you. Thank you. is calcium titanium oxide and this structure is quite complex but beautiful crystal structure calcium in this case is a large cation right at the center Mm -hmm. titanium is surrounded by six oxygens and it forms this regular 3D structure why it's topical in the solar cell area is that exactly 10 years ago, it's the 10th anniversary they discovered a hybrid inorganic organic perovskite okay. which sowed some very interesting photovoltaic or solar cell properties and in this case the central cation calcium was replaced by methyl ammonium, organic cation the titanium was replaced by lead and the oxygen replaced by iodine so it's a methyl ammonium lead iodide which is <laughs> quite a complex yeah. name <laughs> yeah. it's a iodide based perovskite okay. rather than oxide based perovskite.
0: If there's one thing you take away from this podcast, it's that line. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let me go back and describe it. So about ten years ago, instead of an oxide based perovskite, we had this iodide based perovskite. But what was interesting, it was an organic-inorganic hybrid.
0: So carbon, so, no carbon. That's yeah. my most simple definition so of had that. had an
1: organic cation and an inorganic cation but more importantly, it showed very interesting solar cell properties.
0: What makes a good solar
1: cell? <laughs> so, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> so, a solar cell, a bit like a battery, is sandwich-like that has lots of these layers, but an important aspect of one of those layers is it absorbs sunlight. Okay. So it's a photo absorber. And in simple terms, that absorber is something called a semiconductor. When the light is absorbed, it produces very small photocarriers, electrons and holes. And that again eventually produce, is collected to form that electricity. So here you have direct conversion of solar energy to electrical energy. So
0: light energy goes in, electrical energy comes out.
1: Indeed, exactly it. But there's an efficiency issue. Okay. That is not a 100% efficient process. So you measure, or you assess how good your solar cell material is, how efficient that process is, converting light energy to electrical energy. And silicon has dominated. I mean, silicon is used in current solar cell panels. So this
0: is sand we're talking about <laughs> silica, it's converting this
1: silica sand to pure silicon. Yeah. So silicon is seen as a dominant absorber.
0: And so to bring back around the perovskite, this does this solve the efficiency issue you're talking about? No. No, it doesn't. Okay, and So
1: I'll tell you why it's become so topical in that 10 years. In okay. the 10 years since it was. It was languishing at a meagre 3%. That's not an impressive
0: That's not good. efficiency. No. So, yeah.
1: so it, that paper back in 2009, I shouldn't men- mention the name, Tom Miyasaka. I mention his name because he's in Tokyo, in Japan, because it's talked of... In potential, Nobel Prize. Oh wow! Oh, right. Nobel okay. prize. Anyway, it, it was languishing at three percent. What's called power conversion efficiency, and three <laughs> percent is tiny. Let me compare it. The current at that point, silicon, just single junction silicon, just silicon on its own, was about twenty-five percent. Oh wow! So you okay. can see three percent, twenty-five percent. So
0: ten years ago, solar cells with silicon. 25%, yeah. perovskite, 3%. Yeah, exactly. So you've got a clear winner.
1: So then that paper was ignored for a while, and then some other interesting discoveries occurred. And I'll mention two other names Professor Henry Snaith at Oxford and Professor Park in Korea. And they, by different solar cell architectures using perovskites, these iodide based perovskites, increased efficiency towards 10% into double figures. And with that began to stimulate a lot more interest. And now, within 10 years, and this is unprecedented, it has risen to about 23%. Oh, wow. So nearly so matching silicon. Nearly match silicon. So that's been unprecedented rapid rise. And that's why it's become one of the most studied class of materials, these iodide perovskites. Everybody in the solar cell field has begun to look at these materials. Now they know they work. Now, can we improve their stability? Stability was an issue, and improve their performance. There's been two avenues in terms of technology. One is, can we make pure perovskite solar cells? And they have issues about stability and performance, but they have advantages of low temperature synthesis, low cost synthesis. Uh Because silicon still is costlier, although the cost of silicon has come down to produce. But the next, what you hear about first so remember the word perovskite uh-huh. but also the term tandem solar cells or tandem PV so now they're going to use silicon with perovskite I said that solar cells are sandwich like well why not have a sandwich where you have both perovskite and silicon together
0: it's one after the other
1: yeah, brown and red. that's for tandem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tandem and they're best of both worlds silicon will absorb in their preferred area of the visible spectrum and profskites will do that. So it will actually
0: So you're actually grabbing more of that light yeah. energy at and
1: the start. So there has already been studies in that area and already the efficiency has gone above twenty-five percent ah, for amazing. those tandem cells. So who knows within the next few years you could hear more about these tandem profskite silicon solar cells because they're new materials. My research philosophy has always been about trying to understand how these new materials work at the fundamental level, how can modeling, computer modeling, try to understand what's going on at the atomic level. So with these new perovskite solar cell materials, because they're so new, that kind of level of understanding isn't as advanced. So again, we're linking up with other experimental groups to try and understand why, what makes them such good solar cell materials. Can we tweak their compositions to make them even better? And that's where computer modelling has looked into understanding, actually our work has been understanding, why do they degrade? They are relatively unstable, some of these iodide perovskites. So we've been looking at some of their fundamental chemistry to understand their degradation processes.
0: And it's all stemmed from that paper 10 years ago you mentioned so it began as this kind of fairly niche presumably a few people spotted that paper and said like oh it's three percent efficiency not worth our time and then as you say these two kind of pioneering front runners for a nobel prize are the ones who kind of dragged it forward
1: yeah i mean if you look at if you judge it by citations how a paper is often cited by their peers that 2009 paper hardly cited uh, for the first two or three years but then it's taken off so that particular paper I don't know the exact figure but I can guess that it's been cited probably over 8,000 10,000 times now (laughs) that
0: must be a nice feeling for your paper to like not do necessarily so well at first and then to see it taking off at a point Uh, that must be very uh, (laughs) I told you it was important (laughs) Sifo knows just how to get the most out of life, especially when it comes to battery storage and solar cells. If you're interested in learning more about how to turn the energy from our sun into energy in our homes, then listen up. This podcast is made possible with help from Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org is a website and app that teaches you the science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with the skills and the framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more, and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And Brilliant.org have a course on solar energy with, as luck would have it, some cracking material science content which can help you learn the basics or brush up on the details. Here's something else to brighten your spark. We've put a link to brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up through the link will get 20% off their premium plan. Now, I think we inadvertently skipped over your battery research quite a lot there. I think we skipped straight to solar cells, which is absolutely (laughs) fine. But let's talk the energy storage side of your research. So, to be clear from the start, lithium batteries, for people that are brand new to it, which is actually me, we're talking about what we have in our phones... And as I've discovered very recently, it's also what we have in our electric vehicles. And all of this research you're doing to some extent, I suppose is geared towards this green energy kind of revolution we're hoping to achieve in the, in the near future. future I'm yeah, sorry, imminent future. Yeah, imminent future. I imagine it's quite a hot topic <laughs> right now, yeah. So you've already given us a kind of breakdown of how a, a lithium battery works. It's a sandwich. We've got the lithium ions flying back and forth. And we've talked a bit about how a lighter and smaller element is ideal. We've talked about how sodium is good because it's abundant. Is that kind of your top of the list contender against lithium right now? Your material of choice is sodium up there with the on the leaderboard?
1: Yes, so there's a big research area called Beyond Lithium ion, And the two big contenders that I'm working on is sodium iron. So that's abundant, but that's more for... I would say grid level, electricity grid storage for renewables. The other area, and I mentioned the electrochemical sandwich, that sandwich currently in your phone has a liquid electrolyte. It's a highly flammable liquid. It's Right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Good. OK. Put that over there. <laughs> it's it's a, Basically, it's a, li- a lithium salt in an organic solvent. And... So it's highly flammable. So the the rare occasions, and it's very rare considering how many cells you do get thermal runaway and you occasionally get uh, overheating and perhaps even very rare a fire. So in terms of safety, there's a, a research area moving away from liquid to something called solid state batteries. A big hot topic is all solid state batteries, where the current electrodes are solid to make that electrolyte solid as well. And is that purely a safety? It's not purely safety. So it's a really good question. Safety is one of the main drivers. The other is about energy density. Because in principle, and hopefully in practice, we can replace the graphite electrode, which we currently use, uh-huh. with the holy grail of electrodes, which is lithium metal. Right, Lithium metal can actually have a much higher energy density. It can store a lot more lithium, which means that the range of your vehicle or the energy density of your battery, how much energy you can store is much, much higher. So
0: your phone battery lasts longer yeah. <laughs> in the most simple terms.
1: <laughs> exactly. Lithium metal cannot be used in your current phone because it's highly reactive ah. with that liquid electrolyte, but it could be used with a solid electrolyte. So when you said, is it just about safety? safety and energy density as well.
0: Are there any downsides to solid state fuels? Yes, so
1: the challenges are that lithium ions move faster in a liquid Mm. than they do do in a solid. Mm -hmm. So the downside at the moment is charging because the lithium ions getting across that solid will take a bit longer. It doesn't conduct as well as a liquid. But again in the last five years there's been some Exciting advances in finding solids that show really fast lithium-ion conduction. So it allows lithium-ions to conduct really fast, nearly as fast, if not as fast, as a liquid.
0: What kind of solids conduct as fast as a liquid?
1: So going into the chemistry, some sulfide. So at the moment I talked about oxides and iodide-based perovskites. There are some sulfide compounds made from sulfur which are showing some really fast lithium-ion conduction
0: okay so but the issue right now is that your car might last longer but you'd have to stay a night <laughs> yeah, at the service station <laughs> yeah. charging your car yeah
1: and yes there are other issues the, the stability of the materials but it is an exciting area all solid state batteries so watch out for that as well another key word and i think i kind of sense
0: from the talks i've heard you give you're quite optimistic about the chances of us kind of finding a solution to what is a fairly massive problem right now with with
2: existential yeah we
0: need energy but we're obviously using fossil fuels which are creating a imminent climate disaster are you optimistic that we are likely to find a solution a green energy solution in time
1: Uh, well i suppose i'm I'm always optimistic just because i always try and have an optimistic outlook Uh, just to give you an example in i think around 80 years ago 98 percent of our electricity produced in, in the UK was from coal. 80 years on, less than a quarter is from coal now. A large fraction is nuclear, a large fraction is renewables, and the rest is gas. So we have moved away from pure fossil fuels. Fossil fuels will be around with us. What I mean by being optimistic is that if you see that as an energy or electricity pie, that, that segment of the pie that becomes greener, more renewable, will grow. I think I'm, I'm optimistic that that will happen. It will grow, I think, just by political motivation and from science advances. So that It may not be 100% within 10 years. In fact, it's unlikely to be 100% in 10 years. But I'm optimistic that that segment of that pie will grow.
0: I suppose as well some of the responsibility falls on us as consumers of energy to find ways to do that. a yeah. <laughs> <the> question <laughs> consume less was, energy.
2: was there anything we as consumers can do, it. can we look out for a specific, you know, think, oh, th- this has the wrong kind of material in it.
1: There's always energy conservation we can do around the house, and I, things I think people shouldn't feel guilty, people shouldn't feel that there should be any pressure, but there's small, always small things, I mean, there's always small things about in terms of recycling, changing a bit of diet, moving over to cleaner forms of transport, it, it's always going to be fractions and that, those fractions make a, a bigger impact.
0: I think you're right in saying it's the, it's a role for people like David Attenborough, <laughs> or our national yeah, treasures, yeah. to kind yeah. of like you're right. They they seem to be able to have quite a massive impact by just suggesting that actually uh, mm-hmm. meat consumption or <laughs> yeah, any of yeah. these things, you feel a big change in public consensus when certain people say it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on on a global scale, I think where politicians can make a big difference is about pricing carbon. Which again is out of our personal control. Mm. So it puts renewables and other cleaner forms of technologies on more of a level footing with fossil fuels. And I suppose again, political action in shifting supply because it does need investment. Renewables do need more investment. Research on batteries has been has been good. Research on other areas needs more investment. And I think. Solutions will come along. There'll be no magic bullet, but there will be incremental change, and hopefully, the, there might even be a step change as well. I'm actually very interested in who
0: funds a lot of energy research in the world of kind of cardiovascular science, where I was obviously the British Heart Foundation were big funders. The Wellcome Trust, in in the kind of energy research sphere, who are your kind
2: of? I imagine a lot of the applications for what you do is sort of technology based. So, yeah, is there a lot of interest from industry?
1: So. Uh, Well, my research is largely fundamental materials science, so the bulk of my funding has come from Research Council, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. More recently, in the last few years, there's been some dedicated funding in the battery research area through something called the Faraday Institution. This is a sort of a virtual institution, funding consortia of universities, but dedicated to lithium battery research predominantly for electric vehicles. It's only been formed in the last couple of years, directly funded by the UK Department of Business. So that's been putting a lot of investment in that area.
2: You spoke earlier about being a child of immigrant parents and stuff like that, and so you were recently, you served on the Diversity Committee of the Royal Society. What did this involve?
1: The Royal Society set up this committee, the Diversity Committee, a few years back, and I think it was largely concerns over gender diversity, in you know, the fact that we've got you know 50 of the population women, but why aren't women in going post PhD level academia, mm-hmm. high levels of positions of professors? Or so there, there was that definitely they call it the leaky pipeline effect, where there were just fewer women in senior positions, and also along the whole academic track. So it was about one, as all scientists, collecting the data first of all. Mm -hmm. This
0: was part of your role?
1: Not my personal role. (laughs) I was going to say. The the committee's role, trying to collect data nationally about gender and diversity in black and ethnic minority science students. And then looking at maybe initiatives or actions that the Royal Society could take in their own fellowships to try and p- promote greater diversity. Yeah. And one of the things about their fellowships that they discovered very quickly is if you try and make them more flexible. It's interesting that particularly young female scientists, there's that age where scientific careers take off, but it's the time it also... You might want
0: to start a family. Start a family and, yeah.
1: And obviously how much we want to talk about Equal responsibilities obviously that period maternity leave um, it's going to be dominated by women so flexible fellowships um, Dorothy Hodgkin and their own Royal Society fellowships and trying to get more science departments to think about flexibility as well in the workplace so that was one of the aspects yes yeah, so ultimate objective is can we promote greater diversity and the reason behind that is that I don't know if it's there's strong quantitative evidence but there is definitely anecdotal evidence there's more greater diversity in the workplace in any sphere you can get better innovation yeah yeah. I mean it's
0: obviously an advantage yeah. to have a broader yeah. spectrum of people yeah. diversity thought as yeah. well of diversity yeah. Levels, yeah. absolutely I mean, I guess we know on a statistical level uh, there, are, there are structural issues with dropouts of different demographics in academia, but have you personally, has your personal experience of academia been a welcoming one? you've
1: Yes, on, definitely within academia, I can say I haven't ever experienced overt racism. You never know about unconscious bias. My name is very distinctive. Uh, but I've never, so academia. My experience, fact, has been very, very positive. Yeah.
0: And I think when speaking to possibly the Royal Society for an interview, you talked about during your upbringing in London, you did have a bit of a phase, probably you're tied in nicely with your music phase when you were going to your gigs, the skinhead kind of movement was. uh,
1: So, not late 70s, it was around a period after the Rivals of Blood speech by Enoch Powell, mm. Influence Speech, there was a lot of. Uh, racist attacks, the phrase packy bashing. And I was, I was a victim just like uh, my parents were in terms of verbal abuse, but also, yeah, beaten up by skinheads. Obviously not a pleasant time, No. but I think racism is still out then, I suppose, worryingly, the rise of right-wing populism around Europe yeah. is, has reared its ugly head. And there are aspects in Britain that I don't think, I'm hopeful they won't go back to those dark days where you have signs of, you know, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs up on doors, but you never know.
0: Now, you are, and this is something I've been wanting to talk to you about for a lot of the podcast. actually, you have been involved in some fantastic science communication. I did wonder if you turn up in 3D glasses today. That's (laughs) a major component of your talks. What do you use the 3D glasses for?
1: So I mentioned these battery materials and these solar cell materials. They are beautiful, crystal structures and I'm a materials chemist and I love some of the beauty behind these crystal structures. So when I give talks, I, sh- I try and show the beauty and intricacy of matter at the atomic level by showing 3D images of these structures. And there are some lovely software out there that can produce 3D images. And I just take, when I give some general talks, I take away, take some 3D glasses for the audience and they can see these Beautiful structures. Have
0: you made use of them at planet of Science Talks in the past?
1: I have, yes, yeah. so quite a few times, yeah, at Pint of Science Talks. In fact on the website on Twitter if you hashtag three D specs chem you can see some of the images from previous talks and some of them are pint of science. We'll put that
0: on the blog. (laughs) Yes, I knew you'd use them because they are fantastic for our promotional material. (laughs) (laughs) People are grinning from ear to ear and wearing these 3D glasses. It's (laughs) a fantastic image. So your probably highest profile piece of public engagement was in 2016 when you presented the 80th anniversary Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, which are incredible. Awesome. They're (laughs) really, really cool. How did you like land that gig.
1: (laughs) So the history behind them is that around Easter of 2016, I got an email out of the blue from the Royal Institution saying it'll be the 80th anniversary since the first televised lectures 1936 and would I wish to be considered for this Christmas Christmas 2016 because the theme will be energy in honour of the great Michael Faraday. I thought (laughs) <laughs> cool. I thought, my God. So I felt very honoured. So I went to see them because I nearly, nearly turned them down. Wow. wow. I nearly turned them down. Partly because I was really worried about the time pressures. Research was going really well. And I thought, how can I give them enough time? So I went to see the institution. I went up to the institution and I met up with them. And I remember the line they used. If you ever want to use a line to try and persuade somebody to do something, use this line. They said, siphon. If you don't do these, you might regret them for the rest of your life. (laughs)
0: That's how we'll get future podcasts. Actually, I'll
1: say that line because I didn't say it right. If you don't do these lectures, you might regret it for the rest of your life. (laughs) I thought, my God, I can't turn it down. What they didn't tell me is that if I did do them, it would shorten my life.
0: (laughs) It looked quite stressful.
1: It was the most stressful thing, but also the most rewarding thing we've ever done. So it was actually stressful and rewarding. I think it was linked because... The stress came from internal pressure. I didn't want to let the institution down. I didn't want to let the BBC down. And I didn't want to let, obviously by connection, I didn't want to let myself down.
0: So to what extent was it sort of the way it looks from watching the, and we will put these on the blog because they are amazing, but you, you're sort of presenting a a live action show, but it's also being televised. So you have the double pressure of, it looks like live TV. I mean, was there a fair amount of editing? Could you go wrong and it wouldn't matter?
1: So for those who are not familiar with Christmas lectures, I grew up watching them. They are televised every Christmas, and they largely are live. So you are obviously to a live audience in the the infamous Faraday Theatre at the Royal Institution. The age group is roughly 12 to 15-year-old children, and the production team, in this case, it was Windfall with the BBC, they want it seamless. They would like it in one take. There are occasional, <laughs> occasional retakes. In fact, one of them, it's when I actually said the bloody word. <laughs> uh, I said bloody hell. and uh, So they had to kind of make me do that again. Oh, you felt guilty. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, outrageous profanity there. So
1: it, it's largely demo-based, demonstration-based. Yeah. So there were a few demos that they had to set up where we had to have a pause. But most of the things, if you see, they want the demos to come in and I would just carry on doing... Well, you've lecture. got all the
0: stagehands coming in around yeah. you and setting them up and then disappearing. Yeah. It was very smooth to, to watch, although some of the demos, if they had gone wrong,
2: uh, Richard so, Dawkins yeah, might were, not were have been with us anymore. Yeah. Were you worried you were going to spike him in the face? Oh,
1: yes. So um, we reprised... Because it was the 80th anniversary event, I was fortunate, and this was really fortunate because it took the pressure off me. I was fortunate I could invite Christmas lecturers past onto the programmes. And within the first 10 minutes of lecture one... Richard Dawkins appears. (laughs) And that was such a nice surprise for the audience because they didn't know who was appearing. And we reprised one of his famous demos. And the demo was a big, massive pendulum with a large cannonball. He held it near his nose and he let it go. And he wants to show faith in science because the laws of physics, and in my case, conservation of energy, says that it will not go further than past his nose but it could (laughs)
0: smash into (laughs) your face. Bit of divine intervention or something like that, yeah.
1: So we repeated that demo with Richard Dawkins, but in this case we put massive metal spikes (laughs) on that cannonball. For
2: extra drama. Yeah, it's great, and it's on
1: on a separate short video on YouTube, so you can watch that particular clip. And it's so nice of him to do it, he was really quite happy to do it. He, He came for a couple of rehearsals with me, it was really nice chatting to him, so he's very humble about it, and he did it, and it was he wasn't And it does, to...
0: It's pretty close. Yeah, it comes, yeah, yeah. obviously, because yeah. of the laws
1: of physics, but it comes right back to his face, yeah. just. So it shows the conservation of energy. So, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> did um, so do you have a hand in writing the scripts for those, obviously? Oh, yes, yeah, that... so
1: it was totally. So, um, here I have to thank on air Tom Cook, who was the main producer from Windfall. He and I worked very closely in devising the script, the demos, from about. August up to December.
0: That must have been so fun to do it alongside was. science. So it's we were such a kind different kind of
1: riffing ideas, but also it was interesting to see from a TV producer's point of view how they worked because even just the writing the script, they were thinking constantly about things coming on, things coming off. Demos, because as I said, it's very demonstration-based, not just a a didactic lecture. No,
0: you have to kind of engage people visually when it's television as well, don't you? So it's those demos are pretty. And for
1: me, being a computational chemist, you know, suddenly being (laughs) doing practical stuff—that was quite scary. But I, I can remember actually, none of the demos went really badly. There was this beautiful Rube Goldberg demo. That was the only one that was a bit slow to set up, but it came across really well. The Royal Institution team were fantastic in this energy cascade. Um, Soon after, Dawkins was on that Rube Goldberg cascade.
0: And you got to meet Selassie from the Bake Off (laughs) as well. So
1: so, um, the family are big Bake Off fans. Uh (laughs) Are you you not? You phrase that in a way that's just. No, no, I am. The whole family are. I am a big Bake Off fan as well. So that year... Our family favourites were Selassie and Benjamina. He was lovely. And he had to stay around that evening while we had delays with some of the demos. But he was lovely, came on and he produced these energy pies yeah. <laughs> to show the breakdown of electricity generation from nineteen thirty six right to two thousand and uh, 16. I don't know if you can ask me about the lemon battery.
0: Uh, I, I have seen the lemon battery. This is the biggest lemon battery that was ever built. Well, yeah. I suppose so, how many people have tried to so build one, lecture to be fair.
1: Three, so all three lectures had different themes. So lecture one was Let There Be Light. And it's really about defining energy generation mainly. Lecture two was out of my comfort zone, but really, really enjoyable to do. It was about energy in humans and animals. We actually had animals on the programme, so more Attenborough-like. In fact, one of the lecturers past that we would have loved to have on was David Attenborough, but that was yeah. the year that Planet Earth 2 came up, uh, and so he was heavily involved with that. And Lecture 3 was energy storage. In fact, we called it Fully Charged. We started off with me driving around in a beautiful, sporty electric vehicle uh, around London, in fact, getting a lot of looks around Piccadilly. <laughs> people getting out their phones and taking... That's siphon is yeah. <laughs> it It's very kind of red, sporty number. But anyway, part of that energy storage was me showing how a battery worked. And the simplest school experiment is a lemon. You can sp- stick in a, a, a copper strip, and in our case, a magnesium nail, and you can generate a voltage, in fact, about 1.4 volts. And why does that work? Because the two electrodes are the copper and magnesium, and the lemon acts... As the electrolyte, so the, the um, so that's your liquid yeah, electrolyte yeah. equivalent, yeah. kind of. So it allows the metal ions to go from one electrode to the other. Right. Okay. But we thought this is the institution. <laughs> <laughs> we can't just show one. <laughs> level. We can't have just one lemon. It's a bit boring. So let's go large. So we went really large. We produced the largest lemon battery ever. Wow. In fact, I I got my research group involved. We bought one thousand eight. Lemons, <laughs> cut them in half to get twenty sixteen lemon slices. So it was true
2: oh, nice. cutting See, edge
1: yeah. cutting edge technology. Beautiful, beautiful. Boom, boom. And oh. uh, we produced. If you did the maths, we should have produced over two thousand volts. We got to fourteen hundred volts, but it's still a world record. There was a Guinness rep there and he authenticated it. And I've got a certificate. Oh, (laughs) Oh, there's
0: probably some diehard Guinness Book of World Records fan out there amassing lemons waiting (laughs) to take you off the (laughs) hotspot.
2: (laughs) spot. Some guy did 2015 and he's just absolutely gutted. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Now, you're
0: a big music fan as discussed earlier in the show. I actually spotted the page on your website where you've got the many songs and bands with materials, (laughs) chemistry links. That's quite nice. You haven't got the Maccabees X-Ray Vision. That's one to add, just so you know. I don't know if you've been updating that.
1: On my webpage, as as just said, I've had a a list of chemistry-related hit singles. Um, Ah, specifically. The reason is that I began to get volumes of album tracks. I thought, I'm not going to be able to keep up with this (laughs) because there are... thousands yeah. of chemistry related album tracks out there so i've confined it just to hit singles oh,
2: okay.
1: band names yeah okay. and album titles you have done quite well i don't know if i have yeah. be able to <laughs> so the obvious one freddie mercury Yes, oh, yeah, of course. And um, of singles, Atomic. So, for listeners out there, if you wanted to email me, you can send me um, chemistry related hit singles, album tracks, <laughs> album, not album tracks, album titles, and uh, band names or singers' You're names. You're going to be inundated. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now, this is where we move on to the live action game element of the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, this is something I've constructed. Okay. The rules are simple as it is, the UNESCO year of the Periodic Table Uh, this year. Yeah, that is right, it wasn't last year, it It is right, it's this year. It is this year. I've come up with a quiz, you're a materials chemist, so hopefully you're fairly familiar with the Periodic Table. We're going to give you a pen and paper for this, because otherwise it is quite a brutal challenge. We're going to give you, I mean, I originally wrote one minute, I've come up with so many of these, maybe we should give you two minutes. Basically, oh, no. I'm going to read you a list of elements. Oh, no. <laughs> you are going to work out what band name I am spelling with the chemical symbols <laughs> of the elements. So maybe, maybe you and I could do the yeah, simplest yeah, yeah. example. If I okay. were to say to you, Jim, and I'll probably mispronounce this now because I'm not a chemist. <laughs> copper rhenium? Rhenium? Rhenium is rhenium. Great. What, what band is that, Jim, if you... Well,
2: copper is C-U. Correct. And rhenium, I'm guessing is R-A, so I'm guessing that's the cure.
0: Very good. Perfect example. So, so I'm not holding I that. that. Yes. We have more of these for you. Here's oh, a pen like and that. paper, because okay. to, to memorise these is brutal. We've got a timer on the go.
1: What a good idea. To, yes.
0: <laughs> so we'll start. I'll just read you about the, the elements, yeah. and the timer can begin yeah. now. So, samarium, iodine, thorium, sulphur. That's samarium, iodine, thorium,
2: sulphur. Smith. Smith. Fantastic. That was fast. Okay. Should I do that? Yeah. Uh, lithium, boron, erbium, titanium. This is Libertine's. Oh, oh so he's quick. good. Yeah. He
0: is good. Beryllium, carbon, potassium.
1: Beck.
2: Oh, incredible. Okay. Fluorine, oxygen, aluminium,
1: sulfur. Falls.
0: Oxygen, arsenic, iodine, sulfur.
1: I missed that one, sorry.
0: Sorry, it was oxygen, okay. arsenic, okay. iodine, sulphur.
2: Oasis. Nice. <laughs> okay, this is, this is quite a long one. Okay, sulphur, okay. Oxygen, okay. Nickel, carbon. Sonic youth. <laughs> oh, <this,
0: laughs> I, I really thought you'd yeah, struggle. didn't get to the why. Another long one then. Sulphur, tellurium, rhenium, oxygen, phosphorus, holmium,
1: nickel, cesium. Oh. I missed so that was sulfur oxygen oh, stereophonics! <laughs> oh he's got it uh,
0: magnesium meitnerium, meitnerium. I might be saying that wrong or have written it down wrong M-E-I-T nerium M-E maybe that's not an element let's move on to the next one sulfur okay hydrogen indium sulfur
2: shins amazing <laughs> yeah. boron Okay, gold, hydrogen, gold. The house. Yeah. <laughs> All right,
0: this is the last one. Erbium. Okay. Iodine. Carbon. Carbon. Lanthanum. Platinum. Eric oxygen. Patton. He's got it. Oh, with one second to go. <laughs> <laughs> wow you got full marks i uh, cannot believe that how well that went incredible i think that
1: was, that's such a good game <laughs> i'm gonna do this in one of my undergraduate lectures <laughs> i'm glad you liked it i like <laughs> this i like this a lot because oh, really? i do break up my undergraduate lectures uh-huh. because it's known that the intention time span in a, it's meant a, to be 20 minutes or 20 something minutes, isn't in a it? lecture yeah. so after about 20-25 minutes i uh, deliberately break up with some very bad chemistry Jokes and puns, (laughs) and this will be put so. For example, is silicon the same in Spanish? See, See? (laughs) I'm reading a book about helium, I can't put it down. (laughs) Nice, (laughs) have you thought about doing And one of my favorites is Argon walks into a bar, the barman shouts at it, no reaction. <laughs> but these would be great.
0: I mean, I was expecting that to possibly play out at like a four-pointer, and you'd be like, "Oh, this is this is fun, but it's slow-paced." You literally <laughs> you race through.
1: Some ones that I have. I mean, if we remove the cure, so because the G one.
0: Uh, well, so I'm worried now because I'm not a chemist, and I put in this random element here. Is that, is that an element?
1: That could be a new one. Oh, okay. MGMT. MGMT was the answer. Oh. So magnesium
0: Meetnerium was the. Everyone can research that at that home. Like, and, that could be, yeah. Well, amazing. So your points like in the end were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 10 points, not including the MGMT one, which could have been my mistake. 10 out of 11. Possibly with one incorrect. Yeah, so
1: pretty,
0: yeah. I think we need to start a league table of this. Yeah, yeah, but you're always going to be at the top. Yeah. Of I
1: love this game.
0: I have a question about elements to, to, to wrap up. How, yeah. how does one discover an element? This is a question for everyone.
1: Do you trip over it on the way to work? <laughs> presumably not.: So nowadays, the really heavy elements are, to my understanding, again, that's a very good question. It's usually by fusion of fission of existing elements. So, so they're not very long-lived. They last for microseconds. So that's why you often assume They are tend to be high energy reactors. I you know squeezing elements together to form a new one. Right. Okay. Because I
0: always just I find myself. Good question. Well, I'm amazed by like the periodic (laughs) table.
1: I'll have to look that one up.
0: When you strip it back to the basics, you think, how did anyone even think to start? Okay, a
1: question for you guys. (laughs) Uh
0: oh. There is
1: one letter of the alphabet that is not in the periodic table. Is it?
0: What what is it then? What's the? J. J. J Didn't come up on Chemspell? If you were to discover an element, what would you name it?
1: Well, I suppose the narcissistic side, you would name it after your own name in some way, wouldn't you? Because then you're kind of thrilled. Cypholium? C- Cif- 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 yeah.
0: What about a Morrissey
1: reference? Although, actually my one could end up being, sounding like a dodgy disease, Cypholus.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the perfect
0: place yeah, to wrap yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll leave it there. this podcast is made possible by brilliant.org a great resource if you want to learn something new every day brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them brilliant.org's newest feature daily challenges makes learning a daily habit every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths logic science engineering or computer science and they've even got a course on solar energy with some cracking material science content which can help you learn the basics or brush up on the details Using the link in the podcast description, we'll get the first 200 users 20% off their premium plan. Well, that was another episode of the Pint of Science podcast, episode 8, to be precise, with Professor Saiful Islam. I hope you had a fantastic time listening to that. I certainly learned an awful lot about materials chemistry. Never really got my head around chemistry at school, and I wish I'd had a teacher a little bit like Saiful to be able to uh, properly engage me. Now pint of science is just two weeks away so as we said at the beginning of the podcast please do get your tickets now if you have an event that you've been keeping your eye on they are selling like hotcakes so get your hands on them now before they sell out and please tell all your friends about the pint of science podcast which we are now fairly confident will be extending into series two it's been such a joy to make hashtag pintcast19 is what you should be using on social media to talk about this uk slash podcast if you want to hear all the episodes we've recorded so far we've had immunologists we've had the sense of smell in cavemen we've had sports science we've had the neuroscience of love do check out all our previous episodes on pintofscience.co.uk and we'll see you next week for another episode of the pint of science podcast